In Luke 7, 1 through 10, we read, When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There was there a a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turned to the crowd following him. He said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. I've been thinking a lot about uh, lately, how do we know when we're seeing clearly, you know? Uh, Have you ever gone to the eye doctor and they dilate your eyes? And after they dilate your eyes, everything you see is kind of fuzzy. You know, you can look at, you get out of there and you're like, you're looking at an apple after you have your eyes dilated. And all you see is a red blob, right? And you're like, I know that's not what an apple looks like, but I'm looking at an apple. Does this make sense? Or do you remember when, um, I remember growing up, there used to be these missionaries and they would come and visit our church and they would bring these slide projectors and you'd, you'd hit the click and it, it would have this circle and it would go around the circle and it put an image up in the front. But with the slide projector, what the missionary would have to do is they knew what the image looked like that they were trying to show. And if the image came out blurry, what would they do? They would adjust the focus and they would make, uh, they would make the slide projector image, bring it into focus, and they would show you the image that they intended to show you. I was thinking about that in terms of what if, what if we decided that we were going to do an art show and we were going to show contemporary art, right? And we were going to show the contemporary art and we we're going to use one of those slide projectors. And if you've been to a, a contemporary art museum, you look at the art, but you're not really sure what you're looking at. Is this supposed to be this way? Is it supposed to be fuzzy? Is it supposed to be blurry? Is it supposed to be detailed? Is it supposed to be upside down, sideways? You know, like only the artist knows because contemporary art is... I'm not well studied in contemporary art, but contemporary art, it seems to me, is like only the artist knows what that thing is supposed to look like. Does this make sense? So how do I know I'm seeing clearly? Well, you have to know what you're looking at. It's like if you've had your eyes dilated, you know that's not an apple, but the reason you know it's not an apple, an apple's not a, a red fuzzy blob, is because you've seen an apple before. How do you know we're seeing clearly? This whole series, A Place at the Table, is really designed for us to reshape how we look at what faith is like. 
as defined by Jesus. Who does Jesus accept at his table? Who is not accepted at his table? What does faith in Jesus look like? What does faith in Jesus not look like? And so the question this morning, very clear, is what does faith in Jesus look like? What does faith in Jesus look like? In the passage that you just heard read, Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through 10, and I do, I want to encourage you to turn turn there this morning. If you want to, it's, you can use one of our Bibles in front of you or use your own. If you're using one that we provide, it's on page 838. We are going to be looking at a passage of scripture where a, uh, a person outside of the Jewish religion who would normally not be accepted is presented as someone that has incredible faith. Someone who has incredible faith. And so this morning, as we look at this centurion, uh, what we're looking at this morning is what was it about this centurion's faith that so amazed Jesus, right? Chapter 7, verse 9, Jesus looks at this centurion and says, I've seen nothing like this as it pertains to faith. And what we're going to see this morning is really four things. We're going to see uh, one thing, one way that faith does not look in three ways that it does. And my hope is by the end of this morning is you will have a little clearer picture of what faith looks like. And my hope is that you will see faith a little bit more the way Jesus sees faith. All right. What does it look like? What does it not look like? We start with what it doesn't, and then we move to three things in the way it does. First, what does faith not look like? We see that true faith first is not based on merit. This text is so interesting because we've noticed all throughout this uh, series, you know, we've looked at a woman who was a prostitute and who the religious leaders really hated and didn't want a part of their table, right? We looked at a couple of tax collectors who, again, the religious leaders hated and didn't want at their table. We looked at last week a blind man, a man that was born blind that Jesus healed and how the disciples looked at them as sinners and how... uh, how the religious leaders couldn't believe that he would really been healed or they didn't want to and he was not welcome at their table. But now we come to a Gentile, a non-Jewish man who is a centurion in the Roman uh, army. He is most likely not a Roman. Um, That's why in other instances we are told that the centurions are Roman centurions. This man's just a centurion. And it was a common thing in the time of Jesus for uh, people from other nationalities to join and enlist in the Roman uh, army. And as they'd work their way up, if they came to be a centurion, over a long period of time, they could actually earn their citizenship and become Roman citizens. Such is such a man. This is such a man. He made way more money than most people. He was a good and godly man. But he was a Gentile. He wasn't Jewish. He wasn't Roman. And he does actually not even go to Jesus. He has a problem. And the problem is this Roman or this centurion who's not Roman, a Gentile, has a servant that he cares about greatly. This shows you something about the man in itself, doesn't it? He has a servant who he cares about greatly, who is greatly sick and about to die. And so he asks the Jewish religious leaders to go to Jesus and to talk to Jesus. This man that this uh, centurion knows has been healing all kinds of people throughout the nation of Israel. And so the centurion sends the Jewish elders to Jesus to ask that Jesus would heal his servant. Not himself, but his servant. 
And the Jewish religious leaders, they go to Jesus, and unlike anything we've seen before, these Jewish elders, these religious leaders, are eager to go to Jesus and to advocate on this centurion's behalf, this Gentile's behalf, right? Now, why are they eager to advocate? Because we see it in our text, uh, verse, chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, or I'm sorry, verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with Jesus earnestly, saying, this man deserves you to do this. <laughs> this man deserves it, right? Now, the religious leaders are coming and doing a good thing. They're advocating on the behalf of this Gentile centurion whose servant is sick. But why do they do it? Because they believe that this Gentile servant or this Gentile centurion deserves good things to happen to him. Now, why do they believe this? The text gives us the answer, right? This Gentile centurion deserves it according to the Jewish elders. Why? Verse 5, because he loves our nation. He loves the Jewish nation. And he has built our synagogue. He loves us and he has built our synagogue. Now, this may be an overly cynical take to this text, but I have just been immersing myself in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life. And can you think of any other instances, perhaps, where the Jewish religious leaders uh, come to Jesus and advocate for someone outside of their group, right? I think this might be unique. And the Jewish leaders do it. Why? Because he deserves it. Why do they deserve it? Because he has helped us, right? He likes us. And he helped build our synagogue, our church, the place where we worship. I read into this text, and maybe I am reading into it. I read into this text, we will scratch his back so he continues to scratch ours. Does this make sense? He deserves it. Because according to the religious leaders, and you don't have to go far in the Gospels, the stories of Jesus to see this, according to the religious leaders of Jesus' day, It was those who deserve who God, they thought God loved. And in the Jewish religious leaders' minds, this man has helped us, so he deserves it, right? This man has helped us, and so he deserves it. But true faith does not work like that. True faith is not quid pro quo, right? It is not transactional. It is not, you've done this for me, so I will do this for you. Uh, Faith that is based on merit, that is based on we deserve it, so you owe me this, is the kind of faith that says this. I know I am worthy because I have been good. I expect you will do what I need and should because you should. And if you don't, I will be upset and probably won't believe. Right? I'm going to read that again. That's kind of a damning piece of language, you know. I know I am worthy because I have been good. I expect you will do what I want because you should, right? And if you do not, I will be upset and will no longer believe, right? I think so many, we're coming on the Christmas season, so many people believe in God, kind of like Santa Claus, that if we stop believing in him, his his powers go down, right? Like that uh, Santa Buddies movie I watched where there was this special crystal in this cave and as the people stopped believing in Santa Claus, this crystal would start to melt. And as the crystal melt, there was the danger of the spirit of Christmas 
evaporating, right? God does not work this way. <laughs> if you believe that God is that way, and, and I'm not going to be insulting enough to think you really do, like I don't think you think God is like a Santa buddy movie, you know, with those dogs. And if you don't know what it is, you just don't have kids my kids' ages, right? Um, but while you may not think of God like Santa buddy, so many people, so many people, so many people believe God should do because we deserve. And God does not work this way. True faith is not based on merit. Notice that true faith is based on grace. True faith is based on grace. The centurion doesn't even go to Jesus in this text. Do you see that? He first has these religious leaders, these Jewish religious leaders who are misguided go to Jesus. And notice, I forgot to say this, notice Jesus isn't harsh to them, is he? You know how he's harsh to all the religious leaders throughout the text? Even when, the, even when these people are wrong, he doesn't give them an explanation on grace versus works. He just says, I'll go with you because at least there was some level of goodness and kindness in them. The only time Jesus is harsh with the religious leaders is when they are eliminating people from the table and saying they're not good enough and are not welcome. Even though these guys are misguided, Jesus is gentle and kind with them. But the centurion notice, unlike the religious leaders, does not say, I deserve this, I am worthy, uh, I, have been, I am worthy because I have been good, and I expect you will because you should, right? The centurion says, I know I am unworthy. I know I'm unworthy. See it in verse 7? I know I'm unworthy. That's why I didn't even come to you. I know I'm unworthy, but I believe you can help, right? A faith that is based on merit believes, <laughs> I know I am worthy because I've been good, and, you know, I, I expect you will because you should. But a person that, a faith that is based on grace believes, I know I can't, and I know you can. Will you? <laughs> right? It's very simple. I know I can't. I know you can. Dear God, will you? Do you see how different that is? I know I can't. I know you can. Dear God, will you? Will you save me? Will you heal me? Will you, whatever your blank is, will you? A true faith that is based on grace and not based in merit is a faith that understands who God is and understands who they are, right? Understands who God is and understands who they are. I know you can. I know I can't. Will you? And there's a world of difference from that. Then I am worthy because I've been good. <laughs> I expect you will because you should. Right? True faith is based on grace. But notice, too, that true faith, uh, third, happens in unexpected places, in unexpected ways. True faith happens in unexpected places and in unexpected ways. I think this text, uh, I've been wrestling with it and, and, and talking about it. Uh, this faith challenges us to wrestle with the very uh, nature of what faith looks like. It challenges us to look at, ask ourselves, how, do we have dilated religious eyes, you know? We must reconsider, reconsider what we think of as a Christian. In some ways, the centurion is an example of faith happening in the most unexpected place. He is a Gentile. He is not from this area. 
and yet, this, this Gentile uh, servant of Rome who is not Roman um, exhibits the kind of faith that Jesus is amazed at. Do you know that this is the only instance in all of the gospel texts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, where Jesus is said to be amazed in a positive way? There's one other place where Jesus is said to be amazed. It's found in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And in that instance, it is the story retelling when Jesus returns to the synagogue of Nazareth, his hometown, and preaches a message in the synagogue. And at the end of that text, the people revile Jesus saying, who is this man? Isn't he just the carpenter's son? And Jesus says, I've never seen people with such little faith. And the text, the narrator says, And Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith, right? The church people, the synagogue people. But here, we have a Roman, or a centurion. I keep wanting to call him Roman. He's not. A centurion who's a Gentile. And Jesus says, I am amazed at his faith. Because salvation happens in unexpected places. Although in some ways it's not so unexpected, is it? The centurion is the kind of person who is looking and seeking for God, right? He is looking and seeking for God. In some ways, he's a a person of goodwill and peace. He pursues after God not to control other people and manipulate them, right? But he pursues after God to find God. And what does the Bible teach us? Those who seek after God will find him if they seek him with all of their heart, right? This is a man who's seeking after God. He does not have the theological education or knowledge that the Jewish elders have, the same education that apparently has led them to believe that this man deserves it based on merit, believing uh, he is good, so you deserve to do this for him, right? But this man does not believe based on merit in an unexpected place, this Gentile centurion shows faith in an unexpected way. He doesn't understand everything, but he places his faith in God and his faith in Jesus to the knowledge to which he has, right? To the knowledge to which he has. I never think salvation works where knowledge stays at that place, but it sure begins at that place, Does this make sense? Salvation begins not with saying a magic formula of words, but it begins with a true heart that seeks after God. It is possible to say all the right words and not find salvation, yes? And it is also possible to not even know the right words to say and find salvation, although that salvation will grow. And it will grow into a deeper understanding always of who Jesus is, right? I could give you all kinds of examples because I'm the preacher and I get to determine what I say. I will. Abraham, this great man of faith, where does he begin? He begins in the land of Ur, right? I always like saying that word, Ur. He begins, he's from the land of Ur. All he knows about God is he is a God that's appeared to him a vision and says, I will give you a nation and a home. Leave Ur, In a patriarchal society where everything is based on family and land and growing your family so that you have enough people to protect you from the other clans, 
Abraham by faith believes and leaves. Because Hebrews is telling us he was looking for a place whose architect was God. Yes? Not able to pass theological examinations, but faith that blossomed and grew. We have the story of Ruth, a Moabite woman, a traditional enemy of Israel during the time of the judges. She comes into contact with Naomi. Uh, Naomi has left her homeland along with her husband and her two sons. And uh, they fled to Moab, not because they wanted to, but because Moab had food and Israel did not during a time of famine. And when Naomi and her husband make it there, uh, they live for a number of years. Her husbands both marry. First her husband dies, then her two sons die. And now Naomi is left again in a patriarchal society with nowhere to go, no men to take care of her because in that society she needed that. And now Naomi says, my name will no longer be called Naomi, which means blessed and happy. Just call me Mara because I am bitter. I am bitter that God would do this to me. So she's not like a warm, fuzzy person, right? And Naomi makes her way back home. Ruth goes with her. The other sister-in-law goes halfway Naomi said to Orpah, the other sister-in-law, go home. I have nothing for you. I have been made bitter by God. Just leave me alone. And Orpah, weeping, crying, hugs her mother-in-law, tells her I love her, and goes back home. But Ruth goes with her and says, your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. Faith to the knowledge that she has. Yeah? And should I tell you of Rahab, the prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho, who knew nothing of God except that Moses was coming with the armies of Israel to wipe everybody out and the two spies come to spy out the city of Jericho and she hides them based on the faith of the knowledge of God that she has. Of Naaman, the Syrian lieutenant, the the second in command in all the the country of Syria from 2 Kings, I believe it's chapter 6, who goes to Israel uh, because his servants who is a little young little girl, has told him that there is a prophet who can heal in Israel. And Naaman, although he is powerful, has a problem. And his problem is he has leprosy. And leprosy in the ancient world was like death, right? And so this man who has tons of money takes a huge retinue of his servants and his fellow military officers and uh, soldiers, and he takes a huge amount of wealth. I've even heard it said that potentially the wealth that Naaman took on this trip was more wealth than existed in all of the nation of Israel at the time. And there he goes, thinking that he can buy healing and salvation. And do you know what happens to Naaman? He gets to Israel. He meets God's prophet, Elisha. And Elisha says, go wash in the Jordan and you will be healed. And Naaman's like, what? I have all this money. I will pay you for healing. Will you not call down and do some miraculous thing? And Elisha says, nope, just go and wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. And you know what Naaman's thinking? Anyone can do it. (laughs) You know, if all it takes is washing in the Jordan, then like I am no different than anyone else because anyone can go and dunk their head under the Jordan River seven times. And the servants turn to Naaman and say, if he had asked you to do something crazy and weird, you know, climb to that mountain and get an eagle's egg and drink its yolk, right, so that you may gain eagle healing powers, right? Do you recognize that? (laughs) That's Nacho Libre. Anyway, uh, he would have done it. 
But he was just asked to go and dunk his head under the water seven times. Anybody can do that. If, if that's true, there's no difference between a prostitute and a priest, yeah? And finally the servant said, go and dunk. And he does it, and he is healed by grace. Not because he has a huge army that accompanied him. Not because he has a lot of money. Not because he's in second command, but by grace. True faith in Jesus can happen in unexpected places, and it happens in unexpected ways. And it always, always starts with a true heart. A true heart that is seeking after God. Right? Sometimes the prayer... I mean, the point of salvation is a tricky time to pinpoint, right? But sometimes salvation can begin with a prayer that's simple as this. Dear God, if you are real, show yourself to me. And as God shows himself, you begin to understand who he is. And as you understand who he is through Jesus, you become more loving, more gracious, more accepting, more burdened to see the people of this world know the love and the grace of God. Yeah? Salvation can happen in unexpected places, in unexpected ways. There is a way to pursue after religion so that you may control and manipulate others. And there's a way to pursue after religion to find God. And the only people who will truly find God are the latter, right? Fourth and finally, true faith in Jesus dares to ask big things. And I just love this. And and of all the points I've shared with you this morning, this is the one that always challenges me the most as I was preparing for this sermon for the past couple weeks. True faith in Jesus dares to believe big things. And this is just not my personality. I dare to believe things that I think I can handle on my own, right? I dare to believe that I can bake a cake because I know I can bake a cake, and so I bake it, you know? I don't dare to believe I can fix my car because I know I can't, and so I take it to a mechanic, yes? I dare to believe not big things very often, but what do you see that is so astonishing in the faith of this centurion, and it is this. He says to Jesus, please come and heal through these emissaries, these people he sent, first the Jewish leaders, second his friends. But notice Unlike anyone else, the centurion says, don't even, you don't even have to bother coming to my house. My faith is such that I know that you, Jesus, are a man of authority, for I too am a man of authority, and I, I tell soldiers what to do, and they do it, and I know you have authority. My authority is over soldiers. Your authority is over heaven and earth, right? And so, I am not even worthy for you to come under my house. Just say the word and it will be done. True faith in Jesus dares to believe and ask for big things. You do not even need to come to my house. This centurion is unique, right? Because he's the first person we've really looked at that was a good person from the beginning. He didn't have any big skeletons in his closet. Not like uh, the prostitute, not like the tax collectors. And he didn't have a big ailment like the blind man. Here was a good man trying to do his best in the world. A person of peace. And he sought after God. And in his seeking, he found him. 
even if he didn't understand him fully. These texts, you know, the stories I shared with you, uh, maybe Abraham we get the most information about, but Ruth and, and Rahab and uh, Naaman, we don't, we don't know the, the rest of their story. We know Ruth uh, and Rahab both. They're in the genealogy of Jesus. We know some things. But what I believe happened with all of them is that as they placed their faith to the, their faith in the limited knowledge they had of God, you know what grew? Their knowledge and their faith and their love. Their knowledge their faith, and their love. And while faith may begin at a small and desperate place where we don't know very much, where we just say, dear God, if you are real, save me. Dear God, I believe you are real, save me. Dear God, please reveal yourself to me, save me. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died and I place my trust in him and not my works for my salvation. And as you say that prayer in genuine faith based on grace and not merit, you will see that your life is transformed. And so this morning, if you are the outsider, maybe for some of you this morning you've come into church and church is a really uncomfortable place to be, right? You're not really sure about the customs or how it works. Uh, you know, I was, uh, it just always makes me think. I, w- I once was given tickets to this party, and it was like a real high-end like, uh, fundraiser, and the theme of it was disco, right? And I felt so uncomfortable there. Everybody was wearing bell-bottoms. I didn't have any bell-bottoms. And even if I did, I didn't have enough confidence to wear bell-bottoms, you know? Um, I was an outsider to disco, and I will probably continue to be a disco outsider. But if you are an outsider and you're not exactly sure, like the faith communities and the churches and the structures that exist, but you are desperately in your heart wondering, dear God, are you a real? Reveal yourself to me. If you're an outsider, what should you find at the table of Jesus and what will you find? And I hope that you'll find it at this church, is you'll find acceptance and healing and salvation just as the centurion did. Acceptance and healing and salvation. And if you are the outsider, what will you do if you have found Jesus? You'll demonstrate great faith. You will believe that God can do the impossible. And if you are a follower of Jesus, how will you interact with the outsider? You will associate with them and you will honor them in the same way that Jesus honored the centurion. Honor and presence. This morning as we see the elements that represent Christ's broken body, and shed blood, I invite you forward once more to come and to receive of these tokens that represent the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. Though although Jesus was rich, he gave up his riches and became poor for our sake so that through his poverty, we might become rich. These tokens or symbols are a reminder to us that salvation and is not based on works or merit, but it is based on the grace and the love of God who sent his only son that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this morning, if you have placed your faith in Christ by grace through faith, then I invite you to come forward. And I pray that the 
elements themselves might nourish you in a spiritual way to understand and to live out the gospel of Jesus, the good news that God has become man in the person of Jesus, that he has died and risen from the dead, and he offers all of us who place our faith in him eternal life. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your love that you've shown us through Jesus. Transform our hearts and our minds through the bread and the cup that we are about to receive so that we might be transformed into believing in grace and we might be people of grace. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. At this morning, would you please come? At this time, would you please come?